So there's a, uh, there's a sweet and funny anecdote that, that's been circulating the internet about Queen Elizabeth and also preacher illustrations. And a friend of mine used it the other day and I was just thinking it fits wonderfully in our text today. I just really enjoyed the story. It's told by the Queen's Royal Protection Officer, Richard Griffin, whom they also called Dickie. And so the, the Queen and Richard were on the grounds of Balmoral Castle in Scotland and they're taking a hike. And as they're walking along the trail, they encounter two American tourists and they're hiking too and they're actually approaching them. And so the queen's practice, if she encountered someone in the trail, was always to stop and say hello. And so she stops and the American tourists approach, but it becomes very clear from the moment they first stop that these American tourists just do not recognize her. And so one of the American gentlemen, as Richard tells it, was telling the queen, you know, where they came from and where they've been to in Britain and where they hoped to go next. And sure enough, one of them then asks Her Majesty, well, where do you live? And she says, well, I live in London, but I've got a holiday home just the other side of the hills. And he says to her, well, how often have you been coming here? And she says, oh, I've been coming here ever since I was a little girl, so some 80 years now. And so Richard says he can see the gears turning in this man's mind, and the man responds, well, if you've been coming here for over 80 years, then you must have met the queen. And as quick as a flash, she says, well, well, I haven't, but Dickie here meets her regularly. And so the guy says to him, to Dickie, he goes, you've met the queen? Like, what's she like? And Dickie says, well, she can be very cantankerous at times, but she has a lovely sense of humor. And the next thing Dickie knew is that this guy comes around, puts his arm on his shoulders, gets his camera, gives his camera to the queen, and asks the queen, hey, can you take a picture of the two of us? And so... Richard complies, she complies, and then astutely, kindly, Richard swaps places and he takes a picture of them with the queen they do not know. But neither the queen nor Richard ever let on. They bid them farewell, goodbye, and they part ways. And the queen looks at Richard and says, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when he shows those photographs to his friends in America. Hopefully someone will tell him who I am. (laughs) So they're in the queen's presence but they don't recognize who the queen is. And of course, much more unfortunate would be to be in Jesus's presence and not recognize who he is. And so in this very critical passage we're looking at today, Jesus prompts his disciples to declare who they think he is. And for us reading this text, because it's also the story is for us, We must be aware that it's one thing to be very interested in Jesus. It's one thing to be around talk of Jesus. It's one thing to be in the presence of Jesus in a worship service. But it's utterly necessary that you and I come to an accurate and personal decision about who he is and what that means for us. And that's what our text is about today. So let's read it, Luke chapter 9. Verse 20. Verse 18, Luke 9, 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, 
The disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised again. Grass withers and the flowers fade and this good word endures forever. So we finished a section of Luke's gospel last week. That section, if you recall, went from 8.4 to 9.17. And in that section, Luke especially stresses the crucial, crucial need you and I have to respond personally to Jesus. And all of that builds up to this moment right here. It all prepares for this, where Jesus looks at his 12 intimate followers and directly asks them who they think he is. And it's such an important question for Luke. It's implicit throughout Luke's gospel, but the first time we see it, you know, overtly is in chapter 7, verse 49, when you recall Jesus is dining at the home of Simon the Pharisee and the sinful woman comes in and before everybody, scandalous, anoints his feet and Jesus looks at her and says, your sins are forgiven. And you remember the guests at the table look at each other and says, who is this that he even forgives sins? Like, who is this? So then when Jesus calms the storm, he he rebukes the howling wind and, and the pounding waves and the disciples who have been terrified at the storm are now terrified of Jesus and they look at him and they go, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Well, then after Jesus sends the disciples out to preach the kingdom of God, cure diseases, cast out demons, Luke reports the popular opinions of Jesus, and they reach all the way to the top, all the way to the most important man in Galilee's house, his palace, Herod himself. And the crowds are wondering, is he John the Baptist raised from the dead? Is he Elijah reappearing? Is he a prophet raised to life? And Herod himself asks, who is this about whom I hear such things? Who is he? Who is he? Then Luke records the feeding of the 5,000, which we looked at last week. And this miracle made such a huge impression upon the disciples. It's the only one, as we said, besides the resurrection, the crucial miracle of all that's recorded in all four gospels. And the reason it was so precious to his disciples, at least one of the wonderful reasons it was, is that it teaches us that Jesus puts us He asks us to do things that we just don't have the ability and the resources to do. But if we offer what little we have, the little gifts we have, 
He increases them. He multiplies his grace to us so that our inadequate efforts will have an efficacy far beyond what we could ask or imagine. And you see why that would be so precious to the disciples in the early church when Jesus said, disciple the world. But you see how important that would be to you in your home. Like I can't do what you've called me to do, but you promise to use what little I can offer you. And so the calming of the storm together with the feeding of the 5,000s were the most crucial miracles in preparing the disciples for Jesus' great question. And it's underscored in Luke in a unique way because he eliminates a lot of material in Mark and Matthew so that he can put the feeding of the 5,000 right after the depiction of the opinions of the crowd and right before Jesus' question where he repeats the depictions of the crowd. And so it's all about who is he? What does the feeding of the 5,000 mean about him? But as important as this question is to the disciples, the whole thing reaches its ultimate point in, I think, two weeks from now, in the transfiguration, where the father breaks in and says, okay, let me tell you who he is. This is my son my chosen one, listen to him. Beautiful. So three points. Jesus uh, prepares himself, Jesus questions the disciples, and Jesus redefines his role. Jesus prepares himself. So it seems uh, in our text, you know that Jesus is sitting there praying, he's alone with his disciples. So it seems that the retreat they wanted to have, that the crowd of 5,000 men abruptly interrupted, it seems it's finally taking place. Like he does get to give them some rest. And as they're together, because now Jesus has left his primary focus on the multitudes and is turning his attention especially to his 12, as they're alone together, Jesus is praying. And Luke, more than any of the other evangelists, emphasizes prayer and emphasizes Jesus at prayer. In fact, there are seven instances in which Jesus is described as praying that are only found in Luke. It's an important emphasis of Luke that Jesus is praying. So Luke describes Jesus praying at significant moments. And so here he's praying, it seems, for guidance. Like he's about to ask his disciples to come clean on who they think he is. And he's asking the Father guidance. Is this the right time? Is is this the right way? It just makes me think of important questions you and I are charged to ask those that we're involved with, maybe in our shepherding care. Is this the right time? Is this the right way? And in addition to that, it's a prayer of intercession. He's praying for his disciples, praying for their disciples' view of him, their understanding of who he is, that that it would rise higher than the current of the multitudes around them. Might it be accurate? Might it be true? So I think this is Luke's way of saying what Matthew says in the parallel account. When Jesus looks at 
Peter, after he makes a good confession, he goes, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Like, you don't get that naturally, no matter how many miracles I do around you, God's got to open your heart to see me clearly. And Luke's way of saying that is to have Jesus praying to the Father to reveal him to the hearts of his disciples as he really is. And it encourages me to see that our mediator, the beloved son of God, if he's dependent upon the Father to do this, then how much more you and I task with interceding for those we're involved with. Well, Jesus prayed. He prayed before significant moments. Well, second, Jesus questions his disciples. So this is the heart of the passage. Then Jesus asked the disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And it's not that he doesn't know the answer. Like he knows, he's aware. He asked to prepare the disciples for the real question. He's wanting to see the contrast. And the disciples answer in view of the crowds. Well, they think, you know, one of the opinions is that you're John the Baptist, another is that you're Elijah, another is that you're one of the prophets of old risen from the dead. And, you know, Jesus is like these figures. In fact, more accurately, all these figures are faint reflections of Jesus. See, Jesus is like John the Baptist. They preach the same gospel. Jesus is like Elijah. He's a wonder worker. He raises the dead like Elijah did. Jesus is like an Old Testament prophet. He declares the covenant, he declares the will of God. Uh, these are high views, high views of Jesus. I mean, the crowd regards him with respect and the crowds regard him really as an exceptional supernatural person. So it's not that these opinions are outright wrong. They're just incomplete. They're inadequate. They don't go far enough. None of them rise to the level of viewing Jesus as the Christ. And since none of them go far enough, no matter how good they are, they're all fatally deficient. It just reminds us that it's not enough to have high views of Jesus. It's just not enough. Just about everyone has high views of Jesus. I've only read a few authors that really have low views of him. Everybody speaks highly of Jesus. Islam regards him as a prophet. Hinduism considers Jesus a guru, a great teacher of wisdom. Buddhism says Jesus reached a high state of enlightenment and he's come back several times and then shifted his focus. Jehovah's Witnesses affirm Jesus as the very first created being. Mormonism says he's the firstborn spirit child of the father and a heavenly mother and progressed to deity. It's still high, uh, I don't understand it, but it's high. And liberal Christianity, more close to home, uh, presses him as the greatest example of faith, the person we should most imitate to be acceptable with God. That is very influential in our culture. 
C.S. Lewis's thoughts about that are just so spot on a generation ago. He goes about this idea of Jesus being just the best example or teacher. He goes, I'm not trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing, or I am, excuse me, I am trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him when they say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. I mean, there's one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. (laughs) Straight up. You can't say the kinds of things Jesus said and be a great moral teacher. So there's a ton of confusion. You know, in our culture, we have a ton of confusion. Uh, Ligonier Ministries teamed up with LifeWay Research back in 2020 to do a survey, and the survey came back that said 52% of Americans view Jesus as a great teacher, but nothing more. And of the 3,000 surveyed, 630 of them were self-professed evangelicals. And so the current of the world begins influencing the church. We know that's always the case, You know, Jesus is more than a social reformer. Jesus is more than a counselor, more than a friend, as wonderful as those titles are. If that's all you get, it's fatally deficient. And so it's not enough to have favorable opinions of Jesus. Jesus calls his disciples to view him as he's revealed himself to be, and as the scriptures revealed he must be. So Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And the you is emphatic. Comes first in the sentence, which in Greek is really emphatic, and they actually use the pronoun. So it it reminds us that a profession of faith is a very personal matter. We individually have to make that profession of faith. We can't pass along information, nor family information. Like, it's who do you say that I am? And Jesus is asking, what do you believe for yourself? Do you distinguish yourself or stand apart from the popular ideas about me? The current of the masses is your assessment of me. After all you've seen, heard, and experienced, is it radical enough? (laughs) Which would be, is is it really true? Does it rise above them? And so Peter is the spokesman. He's the leader of the 12. And he answers crisply, clearly, simply, unequivocally, which must have been a tremendous encouragement to Jesus. You know, I've, I've prepared you well. I've, my prayers have been answered. Answers Jesus, the Christ of God. And that is, you're more than one who announces the Christ or even prepares for the Christ. You're, you're him. Like, you're the guy you're the, you're the one, you're the one, the figure that we've always waited for. You're not one among many wonderful figures. You're him. What you say, we do. Where you go, we go. You're him. 
You're the one we've been waiting for. You are the deliverer, the savior. You're the Christ of God. Christ means the anointed one. You're the one God anointed, the Christ of God, that God anointed to achieve his purpose. And that purpose was to work out redemption. It all hinges on you. I mean, they view Jesus in saying that as the long expected Genesis 3.15 redeemer. That right at the pit, at the sin itself, God said there's going to be a seed of the woman that's gonna crush the head of the serpent. In the Old Testament, prophets and priests and kings were all anointed for their roles. And Jesus has to fulfill all those roles. He encompasses them all. But among these, what the disciples most think about and what Luke most emphasizes is that kingly role. They confess him to be the Davidic Messiah. You're the real king. You're the king. You're bringing the kingdom. So what we see is the disciples are getting very close to what the infancy narratives all said, what angels, what the main figures there said. Like Gabriel said to Mary, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Zechariah sang in his song, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David that we should be saved from our enemies. The host of angels shouted for unto us this day is born in the city of David a savior is Christ the Lord. There... They're coming to that perspective and the disciples don't yet understand everything that means, which is okay for right now. They don't get that he's not just man, but he's God. That revelation's gonna have to wait till Jesus' resurrection. But for now, their confession is what Jesus wants. And so you're the one scriptures have always looked towards. You're not just a messenger, you're the message. You're not just the prophet, you're God's provision for sinners. You're not just the spokesman, you're the savior himself. You're, you're the one. Well, then Jesus redefines his role. So Luke records that right after they give their simple, clear confession of faith in Jesus as the Messiah, Instead of celebrating that and clapping them on the back, Luke says, immediately Jesus charges them and commands them, which is incredibly strong language to tell no one, which is really strange. And so we ask, why does Jesus feel the need to say that? Well, on the one hand, if they proclaim Jesus to be the Messiah, given the current of the culture, everyone would interpret that as a political military messiah come to lead them in battle against Rome to recover David's kingdom. Everyone, take up arms, go after Rome. Furthermore, Jesus knows the disciples themselves still aren't totally clear about what kind of messiah he is, what it takes to save them. So, so right after their confession, Jesus begins to redefine his kingly task and to clarify his mission. Jesus looks at him and says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be 
raised. And that's the first prophecy of his suffering. And the words must have totally caught him off guard, caught him cold. They were shocking, shocking words to them. Messiahs don't do that. A suffering Messiah was contrary to their presuppositions. They, they wouldn't get it. Um, so from this first prediction, Jesus has to repeat it over and over in various ways to get the truth across to them. Still, the cross blindsides them, such as the power of a grid and a worldview. It couldn't get in, but Jesus keeps repeating it. So Jesus doesn't just say that his suffering is inevitable. He says much more than that. He says his suffering, like he must suffer. He must It's a a real important word. It means that his suffering is of divine necessity. It's a God-ordained suffering. He must do it. God has appointed his Christ specifically to suffer, which means that suffering is the heart of his mission, which means that any understanding of the Messiah devoid of a suffering mission is not the same Messiah For sinners to be redeemed, if they will be redeemed, therefore the Redeemer must suffer in their place. And so the disciples really don't even get this until, you recall, after his resurrection, he opens the scriptures to them and shows them from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms how the Messiah had to suffer. So Jesus explains the gospel foundations to his disciples, even though they're not quite getting it. He designates himself the Son of Man, which is a wonderful title. It's a title free of political and military views that the culture had, but also it's an ambiguous title, wonderfully ambiguous, because it encompasses two aspects of his person. It combines exaltation and victory. Think Daniel 7, this one like a son of man who ascends in glory to the ancient of days and is given a kingdom. It combines that with lowliness and suffering. Think Ezekiel's portrait of the Son of Man. This God keeps calling him Son of Man, a man among men, a real man who gives himself for the people. So Jesus uses this title to speak of his exaltation and his suffering, really his deity and his humanity. He joins that to that role of suffering many things for us. And what must be included in the many things? All that Jesus must suffer for sinners. The God-man. And he specifically instructs the disciples of that climactic point of his suffering because he must be rejected by the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin. They will put him under legal scrutiny and declare him unqualified. It's like Psalm 118 when you have this image of these temple builders searching for just the right stone to be the cornerstone and they pick up one stone, they look at it, examine it, think about it, and then they discard it. They figure it's unusable, worthless trash and they move on to another cornerstone. He's gonna be discarded like that. And then he must be killed. The Jewish leadership will judicially execute him. And Jesus now is preparing them for the cross, the judicial execution that he will have to face. But the gospel is that's not the whole story. Jesus prepares them for more. He says he must rise on the third day. 
Like he will be rejected and killed by man, but he's gonna be raised by God. God's gonna step in and give his verdict. And he's gonna step in and raise his son to the highest point and say, you've done it, you've accomplished it. You've paid the price in full. You are vindicated and enthroned and your blood is sufficient. That's all the gospel. The cross and resurrection is Jesus' messianic task. It's the heart of his ministry. Anything less is deficient. And so to redeem us from our worst enemies, hell, death, and sin, it requires God to become man, to suffer the penalty of our sin in our place, and then having paid it in full to resurrect from the dead. And so that's the center of his work, and it's utterly necessary. And this is the Christ the people did not expect, and many of the people didn't really want. But this is the Christ you and I need And Jesus must obtain his crown through the way of the cross. This is the only way to redeem sinners, and this is what the Old Testament foretold. And so Jesus leaves us with that question, is this the Christ you recognize? Is that the one you recognize? When you're in his presence, do you recognize him as that? See, the God-man who suffers and resurrects for us, as such as he the person, not one person among many, but is he the person, the Christ of God, around whom your life revolves? When we were in college, I love thinking about my younger brother at Ole Miss, and he's a really good singer, and he played his guitar, and he got into, in the dorm room, he got into um, playing the Larry Norman song in the 70s, the outlaw song, where it goes, some say he was an outlaw, that he roamed across the land with a band of unschooled ruffians and a few old fishermen. And some say was a poet that he stood upon a hill that his voice could calm an angry crowd and make the waves stand still. And some say was a sorcerer, a man of mystery. He could walk upon the water. He could make a blind man see. And some say a politician who spoke of being free. He was followed by the masses on the shore of Galilee. But some say he was a son of God, a man above all men that he came to be a servant and to set us free from sin. And that's who I believe he is, because that's who I believe. And I think we should get ready for his time for us to leave. And so Jesus looking at us, he's saying much the same thing. Do you see me as the Christ? Am I the one? Who do you really say that I am? May God add his blessing to you, let's stand.